With Bibles open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we continue our series of messages entitled Rooted and Grounded as we make our way through the book of Ephesians. Today I'm going to speak to you on the topic of walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 25 and following. I know we're playing uh, musical church chairs. We've been standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down. But I, I have a firm belief and conviction that when the Word of God is read, we stand in the honor of reading God's Word. So let's stand back up in the honor of reading God's Word. With your Bibles open, Ephesians chapter 4, and we will uh, begin reading in verse number 25. You follow along in your translation as I read from mine. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being honest with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come to your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. All of God's people said, please be seated. We're going to be talking about walking in the Spirit today. There are certain things that you can apply to your life, and Paul gives us an outline here that if we apply these to our life, it will help us to be walking our life, walking in the Spirit. Number one, to walk in the Spirit means that we are to live truthfully, that we are to live truthfully. That's verse 25, that we are to live in the truth of God's Word, but we are also to speak the truth. This is where it starts, to live truthfully, to live honestly. This is why verse 25, Paul puts it this way, don't lie, put away all lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Jesus called the devil, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. When the devil slithered in the Garden of Eden, he came with lies and deception. And, and mankind believed in the lies of Satan and not the truth of God, and thus they fell. I've often said that you're never more like the devil than when you're telling a lie. Therefore, faithful living, honest living is to express the heart and to live the life of Christ in us. Lying, deception is incompatible with our life in Christ. Somebody said, I don't tell lies. I don't tell lies. I just remember things bigger than what they were. You fishermen, you know a thing or two about this, don't you? That bass was that big. Some of you have caught the camera trick. You know what I'm talking about? You catch a little minnow and you hold it. The closer you hold it to the, the, the away from your body and the closer you hold it to the camera, the bigger the fish looks, right? Lying, though. Deception. Hypocrisy. Cheating. Honestly, cheating in all forms, whether you're cheating in school or cheating on your taxes. It's, it's living dishonestly. It's living a lie. I read a statistic the other day that said that 50% of Americans confess that they lie daily. And that's a lie. We all, we know that that's a lie. That people are lying about lying. That's bad when you lie about lying. (laughs) But it's a way of life for so many people, isn't it? Just to constantly tell lies. But here Paul says don't lie. 
then he takes it on a positive note. He, he, he doesn't just give us the negative, do not lie, but he, he shines the positive light on it. He says, he says, speak the truth with your neighbor. That's positive. So do you want to maximize your marriage? Make your marriage as dynamic and, and you want to make your marriage growing and dynamic and healthy? Speak truth to one another as husbands and wives. You want your children to grow up and respect you and have values and value your way of life? Speak truth and live truth before your children, before your family. You want to live and see your business succeed? Be a person of integrity. Now, you may not succeed as, as you, if you live honestly and truthfully in the lies of the world and in the eyes of the business. You may not succeed in the business world the way the world sees success, but you will succeed in God's ways and in God's eyes. It's not just right to tell the truth in church, but it's right to tell the truth at Wall Street, too, when you're a place of business, when you're a place of your school. No matter where we find ourselves, this is where we should tell the truth. So number one, you want to walk in the Spirit, stop lying, stop deceiving, stop being hypocritical, live truthfully. This is what Paul says in verse 25. Not only do we live truthfully, but we are to give correctly. This is verses 26 through 29. Not only do we live truthfully, but number two, we give correctly. Look at verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. You see that there? Let's move, let's uh, go on, guys, to the slides number two, to give correctly. What it says there in verse 26, to, to be angry and not sin, this tells us that it's possible to be angry and not sin, right? It's possible to be angry and, and not sin. Now, how is that? Well, the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, that God is angry with the wicked every day. God judges sin and wickedness. Jesus himself became angry. Jesus walked into the temple area and they were, they were selling things. And it wasn't that they were selling things that was the problem. It was they were being deceptive and dishonest. They were cheating people. They were, it was more than just selling merchandise. Jesus didn't get mad that they were selling uh, the, the sacrifices. He got mad because they were selling it for dishonest gain. And so he takes a whip and he drives the money changers and he overturned the tables. And I guarantee you that when Jesus did this, he did not do it with a smile on his face. He didn't do it as the pictures we see of Jesus with a little lamb around his neck. Jesus wasn't walking around with a lamb on his neck driving the money changers out of the temple. I can guarantee you that. He was angry, but yet we know that Jesus never sinned. So he was angry, but yet he did not sin. It was righteous indignation. Righteous indignation that was taking place. And so it's possible that when we see things that are not right, it is our responsibility to be righteously indignant toward those things. Yes, to be angry about those things that grieve the heart of God. When we see immorality and sin being championed in our country, when we see people who are wounded and hurt and the injustices that are all around us, when we see this bloody, vile abortion business, we ought to get angry. And as I said in the first service, if, if we found a company that would dismantle and sell pieces of, of, of an animal, of a dog or a cat, you better believe that that business would have to shut its doors yesterday. But yet a, a company that aborts babies can do this all day long and nothing's wrong with it. How backward our country is. How lost our country is. And friend, if this does not make you angry, there's something wrong. Now, it's not anger that leads to sin. This, we're talking about righteous indignation. We ought to speak for righteousness. We speak out for what is right. When God calls sin, sin, and God says this is wrong, when we stand with God, when we look at sin, it's going to make us angry. We as the church of Jesus Christ need not to be so insipid that we are unmoved by things that, that, that move the heart of God. 
and the church, and, and I'm, I'm excited about what I'm seeing in the church today. All across this land, Christians that have been in a slumber for, for decades are beginning to wake up and realize that the country that we're living in is not the country that we received from the previous generation. And so the country, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the, the silent majority everybody calls us. But we're beginning to wake up and we're beginning to speak out and we need to do it more often. But having said this, having said this, to give correctly, how do we give correctly? Well, Paul tells us, number one, we never give in. We don't give in to sinful anger. So to give correctly means that we don't give in. Guys, if we can go on to the next slide again, to give in. If you're taking notes, make sure you write these down. We have no right to allow unrighteous anger to, to boil and to lose our temperament or to lose our temper. You see, when we came to know Christ as our Savior and Lord, what, what he did was he created a new temperament in us. He created us and we are now transformed. He, he changed our temper. So we don't give in to anger. When anger comes in, if, if, it's, if it's a godly kind of anger, that anger, if left unchecked, can become sinful anger. So we don't give in to that. We don't give in to our temperament. He changes our temper. You know what the word temper means? The word temper, T-E-M-P-E-R, it means balanced. It means balanced. And if you temper something, you balance it. So when you lose your temper, that means you're imbalanced. You, you don't live your life for Christ imbalanced. He says, don't let, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because you see, when you sleep on anger, anger produces bitterness. Bitterness. This is important for every husband and wife to hear. Sarah and I, we've been married for, uh, it'll be, what, 13 years now? Uh, this year, uh, this month, 13 years we've been married. And, and we, we made this, this pact together. We, we came together, and we, right before we were married, we said we will never, ever, 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 ever go to sleep angry. If we have a fight and, and we know we'll have a fight, we'll never go to sleep angry at one another. And, and I'll be honest, we, we, we have never done that. We've stayed up a few nights, all-nighters before, several of them. Several of them. I remember some of them vividly. But you don't let, you don't go to sleep. You don't sleep on your anger because you see it gives place to the devil. You don't want to give in to the devil. You don't want to give the devil a foothold. You don't want to give him operating room in your life. So, so you, you talk about things. So you don't, you don't give in, but instead of giving in, we must give out. We must give out. You want to be right with God and right with others? The way, the way you are right with God and the way you are right with others is giving out. Verse 28 says, Let him who st- stole still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give who is in need. Let's uh, advance the slides again, guys, to never give out. Give generously. Open-hearted, open-handedly we give. To defeat anger. How do you defeat anger? How do you defeat sinful anger that that wants to uh, grab a hold of our heart? The way you do that is you give out. It is not possible. Listen, it is not possible for you to be angry with someone if you're giving to them. Think about that. It is not possible to be angry with someone if you're giving to them. That rule applies to everything except for the IRS, I guess. It is not possible to be angry with someone if you're giving to them. But the word tells us that the enemy steals our joy and our peace when we give up or when we give in. So when we allow sin into our life, it allows Satan to rob you. 
And God in His infinite wisdom says to defeat this problem, to defeat this problem of anger, to defeat this problem to where you can give correctly, that when this indignation comes in, allow it to be a God indignation. Don't let it transfer into something that is bad, something uh, that will lead you to sin. The way you keep your heart and your life in check is that you become a giver. Let me use the illustration of marriage for this. If you're married, I know that you've had an argument. If you say, I've never had an argument, you're a liar. I know that every marriage, because when you bring two separate people from two separate backgrounds, you bring them together, there's going to be disagreement. And what's often the basis of your argument? The husband said something or the husband did something. Or the husband didn't say something or the husband didn't do something, right? Right, ladies? Ladies, I'm trying to help you out, right? All right. 99.9% of the time, it's on us. It's our fault. But in our defense, if it doesn't have a ball or it doesn't go boom or you can't barbecue it, our minds have a hard time keeping up with these things. Right, guys? It's not our fault, is it? This is how God made us. Oh, now, ladies, I helped you out. you got to help us out. But when an argument begins and you progress into that argument, what's happening? Both parties, they want to be right. Who's right? Neither one. Both become angry, both, and that anger turns into sinful anger, by the way. Ladies, you cannot claim Jesus' righteous indignation here when you get into a fight with your husband. Because when you become angry with one another, you're, 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 uh, it's sinful anger. Because you both think that you're right. The reality is both parties are dead wrong. Here's the truth that I discovered in marriage or any other relationship that you find yourself in. A relationship that, 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 that is going to have animosity, a relationship that's going to have conflict. Do you know how to beat your way out of conflict? It's not just to say it's never going to happen because it's going to happen. But if both parties come into conflict, come into the relationship, come into the marriage, each party saying, I'm going to outlove, I'm going to outgive, I'm going to outdo the other party, then that helps to mitigate these things. You see, if, as a husband, if I come into this and, and, and I do something or I say something or I don't do something or I don't say something, which, again, 99.9% of the time when arguments happen, it's my fault. I get that. And so I hurt Sarah's feelings. And if I, instead of me trying to bow up my back and say, I'm right in this, if, if I just simply come and say, I'm going to try to figure out how I can outlove and outgive my wife. I, I messed up or, or she messed up. If, if instead of trying to prove that I am right, if I try to prove that I love her and I give to her, isn't this the example that God has given us in Jesus Christ? That he doesn't prove himself to be right. We know he's right. He's right all the time, right? Does he rub it in our face? No. How does he do it? He shows us. He reminds us because he gave us his son over and over and over. He reminds us of this. Reminds us of this. If both parties attempt to outgive and outlove the other person, it helps to minimize the fight. Why? Because giving is always God's answer. Giving is always God's answer. Rather than stealing, we give. And, and Paul here talks about stealing. Stealing is a part, uh, there's a lot of stealing, isn't there? You say, well, I don't steal. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 says that if you withhold the tithe from God, you're robbing God. Now, stealing is bad. I would never want to steal from another person. But I really, if I'm going to steal, I don't want to steal from God. And so many people are robbing God to buy a new house. 
So many people are robbing God to buy a new car. So many people are robbing God to pay for school. So many people are robbing God to stay up to date with fashion and clothing. You take the tithe that belongs to God and you use it for your own purposes. The Bible says that's stealing. I was saved at the age of 17. I wasn't taught the principle of the tithe until much later in life. In fact, I had met Sarah's dad, who was a pastor of a large church in Knoxville, Tennessee. I began to date his daughter, and I actually began to serve on staff there at Severe Heights in Knoxville, the church that he serves as pastor. I came to him one day, and I, I, I was new. He never met me. I wasn't dating Sarah. I didn't even know Sarah was alive at this point. I, I, I came to him, and I was looking for a job. I've been saved. I've been called to pastor, called to ministry. And I said, Brother Holly, I said, I, I, I want to serve Jesus in this church, and I'll do anything from clean the commodes, clean the toilet. I, I just want to serve. I just want to be around God's people, serving God's people. And, and he said, well, I'll tell you what. I, I'll make you, I, I, I'll give you an internship, and you can serve. Uh, in student ministry and be an intern to students. I realized very quickly, I'm not called to students. I love you guys, but I, I'm just not called to student ministry. It, it takes a special person. You have to have a special hairdo to do student ministry. My hair is just not long enough to do student ministry. But as I was serving, as I was serving the Lord, my father-in-law, he checks the tithing records of his staff and, and he called me into the office. I was dating Sarah at this time by now and then he calls me into the office and he says, Wesley, we need to have a talk. I said, oh no. He said, I, I'm noticing that you're not tithing. I know what you make and I know you don't make anything, but you're not tithing. I said, brother Holly, I said, I can't afford to tithe. He said, if you're going to date my daughter. He said, if you're going to serve in this church, he said, if you're going to be a man of God and you're going to preach and pastor and minister, he said, you can't afford not to tithe. And so you know what that man did? He sat down with me and it, it didn't, let me tell you, it did not take a large piece of paper. It took a little post-it note to write down how much money I made. He helped me with the budget. It was like three things. I mean, that's all I could afford. The first was the tithe. And we weren't talking about, do I tithe off the gross or the net? Here's how much you make. 10% of that is what you give to God. Right off the top. Boom. It's done. And so that man made me bring my tithe check to him every Sunday. But you know what it did? It taught me a principle. It taught me a principle that I live to to this day. And, and today, Sarah and I, by the grace of God, we give more than 10%. And what we've, what we've found is this, that the more we give to God, the more he blesses us in return. You cannot outgive God. I was never taught this. I, I was never taught to tithe. When I was, I mean, I was saved at 17 and, and called to preach at 18. I saw people, I saw churches passing the offering plate. I thought that was just where you made change. I got a 10. I need to make break and get a five and five ones. I didn't know what it was. We in the church world, we do some, some silly things that they don't do out in the world. And, and unless we're taught, we don't know. But when you read Malachi chapter 3, you see that if you don't tithe 10% off the top, you're, you're robbing God. But when you do tithe, when you do bring it to the storehouse, the Bible says you cannot outgive him and he will open the windows of heaven. And he will pour blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon you. You say, well... What's the opposite of stealing? The opposite of stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is giving. The opposite of stealing is giving. 
That's why it says we work. We work with our hands. Rather than still things, we make a living. We do more than, than make a living. We make a difference. Because with God, God enables us to have a job, to make a living, to earn money. Not to heap it upon ourselves. Not to be greedy or graspers or, or greedy givers. You see, you can give, as we said earlier on in the service, you can give a million dollars and in the wrong heart is completely wrong. Or you can be like the widow's mite and you give all that you have and it's just a dollar or two and you give that to God and in the right heart, in the right attitude, in the right way, God says, that's, that's awesome. And he blesses you for it. You know, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's givers and takers. What kind of person are you? Are you a giver? Or are you a taker? To give correctly, the scripture teaches it's a heart issue. Do you know why people don't tithe? You know why? It's not because they're bad people. It's not because they don't love the church. They love the church. They're, they're good people. You know why they don't tithe, though? Because they have a heart issue. You know why people don't give to those in need? Not because they're rude people. Not because they don't love people. Because there's a heart issue. You know how I know this? The Bible teaches us this. The Bible says that it's a heart issue. The notion of giving, while we have been talking about the arena of money, it's so much more than money, though, isn't it? We're talking about money because that's the largest hang-up. When the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus, he asked Jesus, what must a man do to be saved? And Jesus said, you've got to give it all up. Jesus wasn't saying, Jesus was not saying that you have to buy your way into heaven. Jesus was looking into the heart of this young man, and he knew that money had his heart. Money was his God. And Jesus said, before you can be saved, you've got to break hold of this stronghold that is upon you. You've got to give it up. You've got to let it go. And this young man, full of pride and very wealthy, turned and walked away. Why? Because he could not get past the almighty dollar. And there are so many Christians like this. You can't straddle the fence. You can't serve both God and manna. You can't serve both God and money. Make God your God. Give it all to Him. And when you give it all to Him and you lay it down, listen, He takes control of it. If you're trusting Him for your salvation, if you're trusting Him for your spouse's salvation, your children's salvation, your, your grandchildren's salvation, don't you believe you can trust Him with your pocketbook? We give of our resources. But also here he talks to us about giving forgiveness. When someone wrongs you and repents to you, you're to give them forgiveness, to give them encouragement. We are to be givers. I know it's a hard issue because look at verse 29. He comes back to the speech. He said, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. He returns back to speaking. Why? What often comes out of the mouth originates where? Verse 29 tells us that when you're not a giver, it's not that you're a bad person. It's not that you're rude. It's not that you don't care. It's that you have, verse 29, you have a heart issue. The way to know that the heart is corrupt is to listen, to hear the words that are coming out of the mouth. The word corrupt here means rotten. It means corrupt words. It means foul words, profane, offensive, polluted. Garbage in our mouth, rotten words, no matter how good we may look on the outside, no matter how gift-wrapped we may appear, is never appropriate. Jesus said all of this comes out of the heart. The tongue is toxic because the heart is defiled. He said in Matthew 12, uh, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So rather than speaking corrupt words, polluted words, foul words, instead of producing corrupt actions, foul actions, we are to give out words encouragement, words that build up. Words that are constructive and words that are instructive. 
We're to give good things. We're to bless people by our words. We're to bless them, not bless them out, but to bless them. Live truthfully, give correctly, and then number three, we're to love tenderly. This is the how. God up to this point has been showing us this Holy Spirit that to live in the to, to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, we to, we are to live truthfully and we are to give correctly. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we do these things? Well, He tells us right here. This is the how to. This is the how to point. Don't miss this. This is the application. The way you live truthfully, the way you give correctly, is that you love tenderly. Three things that we love. Number one, we love God. Verse thirty. We're clearly commanded, warned not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, he tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The word grieve there means to cause sorrow. It means to cause suffering. Is it possible to break God's heart? You better believe it is. Verse 30 tells us, can you, can you make God cry? Yes. Every time you sin, you break the heart of God. When we're living in God's will, we're living in God's will. That, that's where we are blessed. When we choose to sin, that's choosing my will over his will. I step outside of the will of God. When I step outside of the will of God, I have now broken God's heart. I have now grieved the Holy Spirit. I am no longer living in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm now living in my own power. How well do you think that's going to work for me? Living in my own power, living in my own strength. I'm going to fall. I'm going to falter. I'm going to continue to, to spiral out of control until I come back into his will. See, I don't want to do anything or say anything that's going to wound the heart of God. I don't want to cause God to cry. So how do I minimize this? How, how, do I, how do I maintain my walk of faith with God? How do I make sure that I always stay in His will? Well, understand that we always must shoot for perfection, but we realize that we're going to strike out at times. Life is a lot like baseball. I love baseball. But have you, have you ever thought that baseball is one of these sports that we cheer and we exalt the underachiever? It's so true. In what other profession of life can you accomplish your task only three out of ten times and be praised for it? If you work at Burger King and you receive ten different orders for the drive-thru and you only get three of those right, do you think you're going to make employee of the month? If you work at a bank and you're one of these bank tellers that gives money back to customers when they come and check out and you have ten customers and you only get three of those transactions right, do you think you're going to be employee of the month? But in baseball, if you hit the ball consistently three out of ten times, not only are you going to make millions of dollars, you're, you're Hall of Fame material. We celebrate the underachiever, right? I suppose it's all perspective. But we aim for the fence. Every time in life we step over to the plate, we, we want to hit the ball. We want to knock the ball out of the park. We want to score for our team. But sometimes life throws us a curveball, doesn't it? There's sometimes it looks like there's a pitch that's coming right down the middle. It looks like we're going to be able to nail this and we're going to be able to hit a home run. And we swing and we whiff and we miss the pitch. We strike out. There's times of life that life hurts. There's times in life when we're in the batter's box and we're ready to swing. And the, the pitch comes in. It's a fastball, 98 miles per hour, heading right for us. And it hits us right in the arm. You ever been hit by a pitch in life? Ever think that the ball's supposed to be here, but why did it hit me here? Life hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Life's a lot like baseball. But any baseball worth his salt knows that no matter what happened the last time he was up at bat, whether he was hit by a pitch, whether he struck out, 
No matter what happened at the last at bat, whenever he steps in the batter's box again, he understands it's a new at bat. The scorecard is clean. I get another shot, another opportunity to knock this ball out of the park. There's truth in that for the life of the believer. There's times when we stand up to bat and we swing and we whiff three times. We strike out. We come outside the will of God. We sin. The, the ball is thrown and we just miss it. We step outside of his will. There's times in life we step in the batter's box and we're ready to, to knock one out of the yard. And, and this is the pitch. This is what we've been waiting for. My whole, all of my dreams and all of, all of my, my life and all of my heart has been riding on this one pitch. And this is, this is what is coming down the pike. And I know this is right in my breadbasket. I've got this. And that ball turns and it hits us. Life has a way of hurting sometimes, doesn't it? Of bringing pain when it's not supposed to bring pain. This is not supposed to happen. This is not the way the script was supposed to be written. I wasn't supposed to get this kind of report from the doctor. You weren't supposed to leave me. You said until death do us part. I raised my children on the principles of God's word and and they've departed from it. God, you promised. Life hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And you know what I see so many Christians do? They get hit by life. And they wallow down. They hunker down. And trust me, there's a time to cry. There's a time to grieve. But there's a time to get back up. And just like every batter who is worth his salt gets back up, and every Christian worth his or her salt, when you get hit by a pitch or you strike out, the next time you step in that batter's box... You understand the slate is clean. You look that this ball, this next fish is coming at me. I'm going to knock this thing out of the yard. I'm going to hit a home run because you understand this. That as a Christian, when we're standing in the batter's box, we're not standing alone. The Holy Spirit of God is living in us and through us. And when you're living in his will, he's going to take your swings for you. He's going to take your pain for you. He's going to help you and give you the power and the motivation to live your life, to live his life through you. He's loving us. Love God. Number two, love self. Verse 31. Live tenderly. To live and love tenderly, you have to love yourself. He has some examples here in verse 31. We've already read it. We've already discussed anger. But you know how anger, anger has some traveling companions. He mentions them here in verse 31. He mentions bitterness, bitterness, seething anger, seething inward anger. Some people are just, just so filled with hostility that they're boiling over. And of course we know that that can't, that doesn't do anything well for you spiritually or physically. Blood pressure goes up, veins are popping, arteries are constricting, all because of anger and hostility and bitterness. You see, this kind of anger torn inward is an acid that will destroy its own container. It's poison. It pollutes your body. The soul, the spirit, anger. I'm speaking to some, and and you've been done wrong. Maybe you've done wrong in the church. Somebody said something or done something. Maybe it's in your family. Somebody said something or done something, and it made you angry. Not righteous indignation. Not like what we were talking about. Not Jesus' anger, but it's made you angry. And you've not dealt with it. Maybe that person came and, and, and asked you for forgiveness and you said, no, you don't, you don't deserve forgiveness and you've held on to that. Who's, who, who's getting hurt here? It's you. Because that anger that you have held into your heart has created bitterness and you're not standing in God's will. You're standing over here in your will because God says to forgive. 
And you cannot live in anger and bitterness and live in God's will. An angry, bitter, unforgiving spirit will put you into bondage. You say, well, it's so hard to forgive. Listen, it's a whole lot harder on you not to forgive. I've met some bitter people in church. And it breaks my heart. Angry, bitter people. My experience has been that most of the bitter men that I've met in church are men who are at one time in their life called to surrender to ministry, but for whatever reason, they never did. As a young man, they were called to preach, and they never followed that call, maybe because of their parents' influence, or I don't, I don't know, maybe they were following money, I, I don't know. But in my 18 years of preaching God's Word and pastoring God's people, I've noticed that most of the men that I come in contact with that are angry and bitter, when I sit down and talk with them, I realize that at one time in their life, normally when they were a young man, they felt God's call to ministry, and for whatever reason, they didn't follow that call. And year after year, and their anger and their bitterness often expresses itself toward pastors and ministers. Because they know that's what they should be doing, but for whatever reason, they didn't do it. And what happened? What, why is that? Because this is what God's will is for their life, and they chose to stand over here in their own will. And when you stand over here in your own will, you're going to experience anger. You're going to experience bitterness. You're going to understand and experience pain and heartache. When you operate outside of His will, you reap sin. When you operate here in His will, you reap blessings. Friend, if you're living in unconfessed, unrepented sin, if you're playing around with sin and you flippantly say, oh, I'm sorry, but you, you go right back to it over and over again, if you've not truly repented, to repent means that you stop doing it. To repent means you're walking in a direction and you stop and you turn and you walk in the exact opposite direction. To rightly repent means that you stop doing what you were doing. That means, sir, that if you're flirting with some little hot thing at your work, you need to repent. You need to go right back. You don't go right back and start over and over and over again. You don't keep flirting with her. You keep playing with fire. Don't you realize what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. You may need to quit your job. You may need to move and ask for a transfer to another office. You say, that's extreme. That's my point. If you have a problem with porn... Get rid of your computer. If you're struggling with addiction, listen. I know the pain of addiction. I saw it in my own brother's life. His struggle with addiction lasted over two decades. Ultimately, he decided that he could no longer do anything else, so he took his own life. And no, that's not the answer either. Suicide's never the answer. But if you're an addict to whatever, realize you're not alone. Seek help. Get yourself out of your surroundings. Make new friends. Quit going to the same places. Repent. And when you have the victory, celebrate that victory. Even the small victory, celebrate them. You've been sober for 14 days. Awesome. Celebrate that. You fall down and mess up. Stop doing it. Get back up and start over. One day at a time. Stop seeing yourself as a failure and start seeing yourself as a child of God. Begin to love yourself. The way you love tenderly is you love God first. You have to understand you have to love yourself. Number three, you love others. It's verse 32. It's very simple, straightforward. Nothing else I need to say about this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Simply put, that if, God, if somebody has wronged you, and they come to you and they ask for forgiveness... You don't say, no, you don't deserve my forgiveness. You hurt me, and so I'm going to hurt you. 
That's not how you love tenderly. That's not how you walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means that you have to be the bigger person. That you forgive others as God has forgiven you. 